I want to speak to you today about why the death of Christ is glorious. Among the massive crowd at Passover time in Jerusalem, there were a group of Greeks who approached Philip, one of the disciples, with a request. They wanted him to set up a meeting with, with Jesus. Sirs, they said, um, we want to see Jesus. Um, difficult to know why they, they chose Philip, although he did have a Greek name, which means lover of horses. came from Bethsaida, up in Galilee, as it's recorded in our passage, which was pretty near a series of ten cities known as the Decapolis, which were uh, Greek uh, cities. At any rate, Philip goes to Andrew, and they, they approach the Lord Jesus uh, for this meeting. As you know, the Greeks were the philosophers of the day when Paul went to Athens in Acts 17 and he visited the Areopagus and the schools of Greek thought. He met the Epicureans and the, the Stoics and it's recorded that these people liked nothing better than to discuss some new issue, some new thing at the time. And you, you can see that that might well have been the reason for these men wishing to have a discussion with Christ and meet him here to perhaps discuss the relative merits of Greek philosophy over and against the teaching of Christ, the Beatitudes and so forth. Um, you have to applaud their uh, desire to not just remain on the periphery, uh, to be on the fringes of the crowds, of crowds observing uh, what's going on, that they wanted something more personal and intimate, they wanted a personal conversation, personal meeting uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a point that we need to apply to our own hearts as well, of course. Not just to be on the outside, not superficial, but to know Christ, to have a personal kind of input with him, um, to really know who he is. I mean, one day every eye will see him, every knee will bow before Christ, and there will be a meeting of the masses uh, in that coming day of judgment, uh, but the challenge for all of us is, at this point, personally, uh, to make this same request as these people made. I would like to meet Jesus. I would like to see Jesus. And I wonder if that really is the desire of our heart. So, I mean, how do we do that? Well, we can meet him, of course, in the pages of the Bible. But it has to be much more than that, just more the information that we get from the, from the sacred writings. I mean, we can read any book, any book of fiction, and a character uh, can come alive in our imagination. But that, that's not the same way as meeting Christ. Um, we meet Christ beyond that sacred page in the same way as is recorded that the early disciples did. You know, so for instance, you have the Ethiopian Chancellor in Acts chapter 8, and he's reading the scriptures. He's reading about the death of Christ. And, he, and he's puzzling over it. He doesn't know what it means. Until Philip, the very same man, joins him in his chariot and, he, and explains that this all refers to the Lord Jesus. And, and the man makes his confession of faith. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he meets Jesus at a personal level and he goes on his way rejoicing. And that is the way that we can meet him initially. And we can continue to meet him um, through faith as we pray to him who is ascended and glorified at the Father's right hand 
a real person. Sir, I would like to meet Jesus. The great Victorian preacher uh, Charles Spurgeon apparently had this text nailed to his pulpit desk. It was almost as if every time he went up there, um, uh, he was he was being reminded that this is what his audience wanted of him. Sir, you know, today we've come, and when you preach, we want to see Jesus in your preaching. Yeah, you may have some stories, some illustrations for us, you may have some kind of historical illusions, uh, but above everything else that you say today, this is what we are crying out for, this is where any hope will be for us. Always remember, we want to see him present Christ. And uh, the great apostle Paul in Second Corinthians made that a similar kind of point when he said, We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. What a, what a challenge that is to anyone who speaks, not to promote yourself, but to, to speak of Christ. A friend of mine, when he was uh, pretty ill, said that any time he attended a church service, that was always in his mind. He, he was just longing to have the Lord Jesus preached and presented. That's what refreshed him and fed him and gave him hope. And he had to say that sometimes he came home pretty disappointed because that, in fact, had not been done. And this is what these men did. What, what's interesting here is this, that a conversation is not recorded. They, they meet with Christ. They're introduced to him. It's all set up and it happens. But uh, there's no debate that takes place. Instead, the Lord Jesus, he, he launches into a description and a presentation of what is at the very heart of who he is and why he has come. And he talks about um, his death. And he talks about it in terms of it being his hour. The hour has come, he says. This moment, this point of focus that he was heading towards all the time, it was always in his mind. In fact, you know, it's always the focal point of the Old Testament scripture. Everything in history and, in, frankly, in eternity was always focused on this crucial, important event, the death of Christ. There were times during the life of Christ where it actually was recorded that his hour had not come. They tried to push him over the brow of the hill in Nazareth on one occasion. And he walked through the crowds because his hour had not come. But it's only a couple of days down the road now. This momentous occasion, this tremendous hour that he spoke about when he would become sin for us. And uh, he not only describes it as his hour, he also says that it is glorious. He says, now is the hour, the hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, it's an unusual way to speak about, about your death. What's this? The glorification uh, of death? I mean, I can remember at school we, we studied the, the war poets. And we were taught that at one time, I mean, that's how people thought and, and expressed themselves. That uh, laying down your life for your country was something honourable, something noble. Um, their values, uh, the belief in, in what they stood for, and if you should sacrifice your life, 
that was something to be to be honoured and, and, and lauded. And then then of course the, the First World War came along and uh, with all that horrendous loss of life and um, and people didn't didn't speak in that way anymore and the poems that were now being written were not in terms of if I should die think only this of me that in some corner of a foreign field that it's forever England no they were talking about you know what passing bells for those that that die like like cattle and and they say it's it's not honourable is this honourable to die for your country in this bloodbath and uh, so what is this then that Jesus is talking about here in what sense is he talking about his death as being glorious? Well, of course, it's not the butchery. It's not the barbarity of of his physical suffering. When he was crucified and they, they nailed him to the cross and they had they had scourged him. It's it's not it's not the emotional abuse, the vitriol from the crowd that is being described as being a glorious thing. I mean, this is horrendous. But, but what he's speaking about um, in this passage is the effect, the product of the death of Christ being glorious. He says, the death of Christ produces something. And what it produces can rightly be described as a glorious thing. In fact, the whole passage mentions a number of reasons why the death of Christ is glorious, but we're just going to be thinking about this one today. And so what he does is, he uses this analogy, and he says, unless a corn of wheat falls into the ground and die, it remains alone. And we know that's true. We take a seed, we place it on a table, we do nothing else, and nothing happens. But if we take that seed and we place it, we bury it in the ground, that will germinate. And one day, life will come from that, and a harvest will be produced. But it will only be produced if it falls into the ground and dies. Now, this is what Christ is teaching here. Uh, Basically, he's saying, you know, it's my death that will produce life in people's hearts. My teaching, your philosophy, is not enough. If all I did was sit on the hillside and expound the Beatitudes, that would not produce the spiritual life that that people need. If all I did was perform these miracles, travelling from village to village, that would not have produced the lasting spiritual life that people so desperately need. The only thing, the only thing that can produce that life is my death. What a paradox that seems, that it is death that produces life. And there is this need for us to have spiritual life. We're dead. The dust of death spiritually settles on us all individually. We're separated isolated, at a distance from God, no communication at all, not a breath between us and God. We need new life. We need to be born from above so that we can know eternal life now and forever in the presence of God after we physically die. 
when Jesus raised Lazarus from, de from death, when he called out and he came out of the tomb, it only took a word for that massively powerful miracle to occur. But for, for new birth to take place in my soul, in the death of my soul, it requires the death of Christ to do that. A word is not enough. And so this is the message, and this is why the death of Christ is such a glorious thing. It's because of what it produces. Now I wonder if uh, I can truly say, along with the Apostle Paul, as he thought about that, God forbid that I should glory, that I should boast, except in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think about his death and all that it, it, it can do, and, and, I, and I, I, I rejoice in that. It makes me glad. This is the best news. I, I believe in that. I have belief in the message of the cross and of the death of Christ. Now let, let, me, let me make a, a final point here, because there is a principle that he now begins to develop that is based on this initial statement. He said, as far as he's concerned, he is the corn of wheat that will fall into the ground and die and will produce much fruit. But he says this, that whoever loves his life, verse 25, ends up losing it. And conversely, whoever hates his life will keep it unto eternal life. It's the same principle. The principle that through death comes life. It's the corn of wheat principle, but this time it's applied to the life of the people who will follow after Christ. Now what does this mean? Well, it's not of course advocating some kind of dark, black, depressing kind of self-harm, death wish kind of stuff. Far from that, absolutely not at all. What it is talking about is whether we are prepared to deny ourselves for the sake of Christ. Whether we're prepared to lose things for the sake of gaining Christ. It's death causing life. It means that I need to be prepared to sacrifice and to give up anyone or anything that keeps me from following Christ wholeheartedly. As it says here, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And for many of the early Christians, as they followed the example of Christ, as they followed the way of Christ, this principle of Christ, for them it did mean suffering, and it did mean martyrdom and death, just in the same way as it meant death and suffering for Christ as well. I mean, in the Roman Empire, they refused to make the acknowledgement that Caesar was Lord, and they lost their lives on this earth because of that, but they had gained eternal life, for they held on to their confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And today for us, this principle, we must allow it to speak to our lives as well. If you, if you love this life, you will lose it eternally. 
If you die to this life, if you relinquish your hold, you'll keep it for eternal life. And if you follow Christ, the Father will honour you. So the question is, are we prepared to set aside the things that seem to be so important to us? Our success, our pursuit of pleasure, our own pride, and the standards and the attitudes of our secular, anti-Bible age, with all the pressures to conform to that, are we prepared not to love that, but in fact to hate that, to let it go, to give it up, so that we can follow Christ? And I'd like us this morning to have our minds directed to that wonderful cross, to, to the glorious cross of Christ, and to see it in these terms. It's glorious, not because it was an act of nobility, and a, a, a mark of conviction, but because of what it produces. It will produce spiritual life, new birth, for those who are spiritually dead. It can give eternal life. But we have to apply that same principle into our own hearts. I can only benefit from this by making that decision to live out this principle. That is what faith in Christ actually is. To say it's Christ for me and to decide to follow him and relinquish my hold on everything else that once was dear to me. Christ says, I fell into the ground and died so that you can have life. You must hate your life in this world and relinquish it for the sake of following me. If you serve me, you must follow me. As the old hymn says, it is the way the master went, should not the servant tread it still.